We are bound for the Western Isles with two objects in view. First, that we may put the ship in a suitable condition to enable us to take advantage of the most favorable season for our return home. Secondly, I am desirous that you should have some relaxation and amusement after being so long at sea. As from your late good conduct, you deserve it! And if every person exerts himself to carry on the work of the ship, as well as to enforce the regulations, and such others as I may from time to time adopt, I shall allow you time to amuse yourselves on shore! But this indulgence shall cease the moment I discover any relaxation in vigilance or industry. Signed, D. Porter, U.S. Frigate Essex, October 1813. Aye, aye. So were the words of Captain Porter to his sailors as they approached the distant and dreamy paradise of the Marquesas Islands in blistering heat and a fair current with slowly slacking winds. Porter's ship, Essex, was the first United States warship in the Pacific Ocean. The Marquesas lie 2,300 miles southeast of Hawaii in the endless sapphire of the great South Pacific, a tropical paradise for later artists like Melville and Gauguin. Porter could have no idea his War of 1812 cruise to this remote and stunning oasis would end in mutiny and murder, escape and capture. But this shall be our true story for this day. When last we spoke, and it has been a long furlough, we were fighting the cracking ice of an over-the-winter campaign towards Canada. So now, to re-energize, we must turn our story hour completely on its head and travel perhaps as far as possible from the foot of the rapids and embrace an endless summer vacation as we explore the American naval base at Nukuhiva, French Polynesia, and the skeleton crew left stationed there. Welcome to the foot of the rapids. Land ho! The backstory on how three officers, 20 men, and six prisoners ended up isolated on the far side of the planet through the rainy season of Nukuhiva is long, beautifully colored, and of the scope that deserves several episodes of this podcast. But I will attempt to very quickly get you up to cruising speed before we hear from our participants and characters today. The Essex was one of the most powerful warships in the fledgling United States Navy, a 32-gun frigate. Her first Atlantic cruise commenced almost immediately after the declaration of war, and in a brief two months at sea, she captured ten prizes, some of the early triumphs Americans took so much pride in when faced with reverses on land. 
For her second cruise in the fall of 1812, she was assigned to Admiral Bainbridge's squadron in the South Atlantic. The Navy used several pre-arranged rendezvous points in order to gather ships and therefore strength and protection. Captain Porter lingered at the first collection point and found nothing, no sails on the horizon. He sailed to the second point, then the third, always finding himself alone. What could have happened to them all? Captured? Lost at sea? Defeated? Porter was now in a difficult and isolated position. By now, behind him, the Royal Navy had a strangulating blockade wrapped around the East Coast. There would be no way to safely return to New England. And every day, more and more British vessels, including huge first-rate ships, were arriving off the South American coast to protect the commerce flowing back to the Old World homeland from the Caribbean and points further south. British agents and intrigue lurked in every port now closed to American ships. There were few if no options. Trapped in the South Atlantic, no aid, no friendly land, no way to replenish his dwindling supply of drinking water. What to do? Porter had proposed a Pacific cruise to the Navy Department even before the war began, and his pre-war study of the charts of this vast region would come in handy for what was to come. The crew seemed healthy and willing, and so, in February 1813, the ship blasted through fierce seas and rounded the Cape and into the great blue beyond, ever mindful that all their toil be for the good of the service. The plan was to make war on the British whaling fleet, then collecting their harvests of oil in the Pacific, and therefore disrupt the British economy at home. Now the Essex would have to be a true predator, relying solely on her prey to replenish her stores. Drinking water, rum, foodstuffs, gunpowder, tools, timber would all have to be taken at gunpoint. Porter often used deception in his attacks, posing as a British merchant vessel before quickly running up the Yankee Jack and opening fire. It worked, and the Essex soon amassed a fleet of prize ships. In the hunting grounds off Peru and the Galapagos Islands, Porter and his first officer, Lieutenant John Downs, captured 10 vessels working in tandem. Some of the prizes were sent fully loaded with oil to the United States, with hopes of running the blockade. Others were paroled full of prisoners, Attempts were made to sell off others in Chile. The fastest prize, the whaler Atlantic, was rechristened the Essex Junior and given to Lieutenant Downs with an independent command before setting out again in late summer 1813 to take four more ships from the whaling industry. The final prize captured, the vessel Sir Andrew Hammond was placed under the command of Marine Lieutenant John Gamble, the first U.S. Marine to captain his own vessel.
battered, bruised, blackened, greasy, and swollen. By October, the Essex and her fleet were in bad need of a complete refit, following eight months of voracious battle and predation. Porter and crew needed a quiet and safe place to overhaul her rigging, beach the vessel, and scrape her bottom, and divest her insides of over a thousand rats, which had been multiplying over the last twelve months at sea, chewing through sails, water casks, and even musket cartridges. The distant Marquesas were chosen for being far from established shipping lanes, far from the eyes of Britain and any patrolling warships who may be pursuing her. The helm was brought to the westward. As the heat and sunshine increased, the crew were allowed to stretch their hammocks on deck in the pleasant open air of the South Pacific. Their passage there would have included the uplifting and congratulatory orders issued by Porter we heard in the very opening of this program. Anchor was dropped at Nukuhiva, the largest in the island chain, on October 25th, 1813. Six ships in total. We hear from Captain Porter again with his first impressions and a warm embrace to our well-inked audience members. I proceeded to a small cove, two miles to board, where were assembled about fifty male natives and three females. Some of the men were highly ornamented with plumes of black feathers, large gorgets similar to those we had before purchased, and a kind of cloak formed of white cloth in appearance somewhat like paper. Each held in his hand a handsome white fan, large tufts of human hair bound round the wrists, their ankles and loins, with large white oval ornaments apparently intended as false ears, and large shells and whale's teeth hung round their necks. They made altogether no inelegant appearance. They were all highly tattooed, and supposing one of the best dressed among them to be the chief, I gave him to understand that our object was trade, and that we had come with the most friendly views. I was anxious to procure some refreshments, but more so to obtain a knowledge of a people with whom the world is so little acquainted. The old men, but particularly the chiefs, are entirely black, this owing entirely to the practice of tattooing, with which they are entirely covered, and it requires a close inspection to perceive that the blackness of their skin is owing this cause. When the eye is once familiarized with men ornamented after this manner, we perceive a richness in the skin of an old man highly tattooed, comparable to that observed in a highly wrought piece of old mahogany. 
on a minute examination may be traced innumerable lines, curved, straight, and regular, drawn with the utmost correctness, taste, and symmetry, and yet apparently without order or any determined plan. The young men, the fairness of whose skin is contrasted by the ornaments of tattooing, certainly have, at first sight, a more handsome appearance than those entirely covered with it. And in a short time, we are induced to think that tattooing is as necessary an ornament for a native of those islands as clothing is for a European. The neatness and beauty with which this species of ornament is finished served greatly to surprise us. The men and women, Porter and his accompanying sailors and marines had encountered this day were members of the Ta'i'i people. In the coming weeks, with the help of these individuals, a small village was erected on the beach to house the Americans and the wares from aboard ship as the work and repairs began. Porter even built a small fort armed with cannon overlooking the harbor for protection and officially annexed the island in the name of the United States. But Porter needed to maintain good and healthy relations with his hosts as he depended on them. And ever wary of the fact the Americans were dreadfully outnumbered, always needed to show a facade of great strength to the islanders. Unfortunately for the Americans, this meant being pulled into a military alliance with the Ta'i'i, who seemingly were always at war with other tribes on their island. Porter, Downs, and Gamble led several attacks against a number of villages and mountain strongholds before having the majority of the tribes sue for peace. It is somewhat astounding that in the seven short weeks or so the Americans were present, they conducted so much military activity and still managed progress on the rigging overhaul. The islanders would not quietly stay under the American yoke for long, however. By mid-December, the ships were ready. Porter and Downs aboard the Essex and Essex Jr. respectively departed the island in search of the war, leaving Marine Lieutenant Gamble in command of a skeleton force and three ships with orders to maintain an American presence there in case Porter needed another safe haven in the aftermath of battle. They were to remain five and a half months, and if no word came, make sail for the coast of Chile. The rains began. And slowly, the situation for Lieutenant Gamble began to unravel week by week. The frigate had scarcely got clear of the Marquesas before we discovered a hostile disposition in the natives. And in a few days, they became so insolent that I found it absolutely necessary 
not only for the security of the ships and property on shore, but for our personal safety, to land my men and regain by force of arms the numerous articles they had in the most daring manner stolen from the encampment. Our work went on well, and the men were obedient to my orders. Though I discovered an evident change in their countenances, which led me to suppose there was something wrong in agitation. And under that impression, I caused all the muskets, ammunition, and small arms of every description to be removed from the other ships to the Greenwich, the one on board of which I lived, as a necessary precaution against a surprise from my own men. Lieutenant John Gamble, United States Marine Corps. The rum ran dry on January 22nd, and the islanders began continually inquiring of the traders, the individuals authorized to do business on shore, as to how many Americans there were now that the big ship had left. They were always told, on orders, over 100, to bolster the facade of strength. Women were banned from coming on board so that their wandering eyes may not discover the truth, that there were barely 20 men, many of whom were down with a lingering sickness. John Witter, a Marine, was mysteriously drowned in the surf in February. The rains continued to fall, as did morale. Friday, March 18, 1814. At 12, the boat was discovered missing. It was found that Welch had taken the boat, oars, sails, etc., with two prisoners and also Peter Swack, and had gone out to sea. At daylight, I went outside, but saw nothing of the runaways. Found that the runaways had stove Mr. Gamble's blue boat in two places, in order that they might not be pursued by her, she being the fastest pulling boat. Midshipman William Feltis. Midshipman Feltus would make many other entries in his journal detailing the deteriorating American force, including one for May 7th, and it is strange to read that passage, knowing in a matter of hours its author would be dead. By mid-April, a nervous John Gamble would order his men to begin rigging the ship Seringapatam and Sir Andrew Hammond devising that keeping the men occupied with work would pass the time and their thoughts more easily. But all would be lost on that day of May 7th. We rely on the official report of John Gamble to relate what remains of the tale. On the 7th of May, while on board the Seringapatam, on duty which required my presence, I was suddenly and violently attacked 
by the men employed in that ship. After struggling a short time and receiving many bruises, I was prostrated on the deck and my hands and legs tied. Midshipman Feltis and acting Midshipman Clapp were in a few minutes after thrown in with me, tied in the same manner as myself. And the mutineers, bending all the necessary sails, they stood out of the bay with a light wind off the land. Shortly after getting clear of the bay, one of the sentinels, although repeatedly cautioned against putting his finger on the trigger, fired a pistol, the contents of which passed through my left heel, a little below the ankle bone. At nine o'clock, the night dark and the wind blowing fresh, after receiving by request from the mutineers a barrel of powder and three old muskets, I was put into a leaky boat in which I found my unfortunate companions. In this situation, after rowing at least six miles and every person exhausted from the great exertions made to keep the boat from sinking, we reached the vessel Greenwich where I found the few remaining men anxiously looking out for me and seriously alarmed at the conduct of the savages who had already began to plunder the encampment. My first object was to put the Sir Andrew Hammond in such a situation that we might get underway at any moment when the savages made an unprovoked and wanton attack upon us in which I have with the deepest regret to inform you that midshipman Feltis, John Thomas, Thomas Gibbs and William Brudnell were massacred, and Peter Cottingham dangerously wounded, who, with William Worth, made his escape by swimming some distance. The savages were driven back by my firing the few guns we had just before loaded with grape and canister shot. Before the boat returned and the guns were reloaded, they made a second attempt and afterwards repeated efforts, but were repulsed by our keeping up a constant fire. During this time, several hundred were employed in pulling down the houses and plundering the encampment, while others were in the fort. I sent the boat to the Greenwich with orders to burn that ship and return with all possible dispatch that our ammunition was nearly expended and we had no other means of keeping the savages one moment out of the ship. We then bent the jib and spanker cut the moorings, and luckily had a light breeze which carried us clear of the bay, with only six cartridges remaining. We now found our situation most distressing, for in attempting to run the boat up, she broke in two parts, and we were compelled to cut away from the bows the only remaining anchor. We mustered altogether eight souls, of whom there were one cripple confined to his bed, one man dangerously wounded, one sick, one convalescent from scurvy, and myself unable to lend any further assistance, the exertions of the day having inflamed my wound so much as to produce a violent fever, leaving only midshipman clap and two men capable of doing duty. In that state, destitute of charts and of every means of getting to windward, I saw but one alternative, to run the trade winds down and if possible, make the Sandwich Islands. 
in hopes of either falling in with some of the Canton ships or of obtaining some assistance from Tama'ama'a, king of the Windward Islands. On the 25th of the same month, we made Ohaihi, and on the 30th, after suffering much, came to anchor in Waititi Bay at the island of Wohu. To help fix your position, Maid Auhaihi is, of course, the Hawaiian island chain. Came to anchor in Waititi Bay is Waikiki Beach at the island of Oahu or Oahu. And when Gamble relates that in attempting to run the boat up, she broke in two, he is, of course, referring to the ship's longboat or a small rowboat not the big Sir Andrew Hammond. But after all that, death, desertion, mutiny, a gunshot wound, an uprising, hobbling across the deck, touching off cannon to ward off attacking war canoes, fever, destruction, escape, and a desperate run. After all, all that, resupplying and finally setting off for the mainland, gamble, and the Andrew Hammond were captured the very next day by the British warship Cherub. Gamble and his little muster roll of eight would then endure another 12 months in the dark, airless hold of a British ship confined as prisoners. They would, after all, make Valparaiso, Chile, as their orders dictated, but only to re-embark as prisoners for Rio de Janeiro, where Gamble finally received attention from a physician regarding the lead slammed into his foot. Dispatched in a Swedish ship, he at last reached the United States at the end of August, 1815, his very first night in New York, he sat down to pen the words you have heard to the Secretary of the Navy, his official report. Endless summer, Nukuhiva, and Aloha. <laughs>